I'm Gregory Berg. As we are getting underway with yet another school year, I thought it would be fun to go back into the archives and replay an interesting morning show interview related to the world of education. In this particular case, a conversation which explores some of the issues behind single-sex schooling, that is, schooling that involves only boys or only girls. This conversation was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2003. Enjoy. We confront a very interesting topic today on The Morning Show here on WGTD 91.1 FM, that of single-gender schooling. And we're going to be talking about it with uh, someone who has uh, wrestled with this uh, issue quite a lot, Dr. Rosemary Salamone, who is the author of a a very thought-provoking book called Same, Different, Equal, Rethinking Single-Sex Schooling. Uh, She is a professor of law at St. John's University School of Law, and uh, we will find out a bit about her own connection to this uh, really complicated issue and and her feelings about it, and uh, and those feelings are laid out uh, very clearly uh, in this book, which uh, I I recommend to anyone who has an interest in the topic. Uh, Rosemary Salamone, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for inviting me. You uh, you talk in the book's preface about how this issue sort of... uh, entered your life in, in, in a fairly forceful way, or, or at least in a way which ended up inspiring the writing of this book. Tell us about that. It was a, a rather uh, serendipitous event, I guess you would say. It wasn't a book that I had intended to write. I was busy finishing up another book and thinking about moving on to something else. And uh, it was ni- the summer of 1996. Uh, and when it hit the newspapers in New York that the New York City Board of Ed was planning an all-girls school in East Harlem, the Young Women's Leadership School, the civil liberties groups in New York, the New York Civil Liberties Union and the New York chapter of NOW in particular, were up in arms. Uh, They thought that the school was retrograde. It was Neanderthal. It was going to stereotype girls. It was discriminating against boys. It was analogous to separating students on the basis of race. It violated the federal constitution. It violated the federal statute, Title IX. And so... um, the sponsor of this program, it is a public school program, but there was a private sponsor, uh, called me and asked me for some legal advice. You know, is it true that this violates the Constitution or violates Title IX? And, and I thought, I said, well, you know, let me take some time to think about it, look back at the statute, look back at the federal regulations, and I did. And it seemed that there was considerable room for interpretation there and that the civil liberties groups were wrong, certainly, as a matter of policy. Uh, And so I became drawn into this public debate that went on in New York City over that summer uh, and became passionately determined that this school was going to open. I myself had attended an all-girls school, uh, high school, and suddenly started thinking, reflecting on that, that aspect of it. I always thought, well, it was a strong academic program, and that's what was positive for me. But when I thought about it more deeply, I realized that part of the positive effect it had in my life was the fact that it was all girls. It was a place where girls went to flourish academically. And the the total focus of the school was on academic achievement, taught you how to be competitive in the absence of boys at a very vulnerable time in your life where boys are not only a distraction, but really a chilled, silenced girl Uh, in a way where they don't develop those skills to compete. Uh, And so uh, the more I became involved in this, the more I thought, well, you know, there's more to it. 
uh, as a result of that, Diane Ravage uh, from New York University, she invited me to prepare a paper for a conference she was sponsoring at the Brookings Institution in Washington the following year on single-sex schools. Um, and so I did so, and then that paper started circulating around Washington, and people were saying to me, there's really a need for a book here, and this paper is the blueprint for the book. And so as soon as I finished the other book I was writing, I went on to this book and, uh, and spent, I'd say, a, a good five years uh, researching it and visiting schools around the country, mostly private, independent schools, because we have so few public single-sex schools in the country. For the past 30 years, the way the federal government has interpreted the law, these schools would be impermissible, and that is, that is about to change, hopefully. You, uh, of course, approach this uh, very much with your own point of view, that being that that, uh, there is something uh, very laudable and valuable and uniquely beneficial about single-sex schooling. I wonder um, to what extent, if at all, uh, you did uh, your research over the last five years in writing this book with with at least an attempt at open-mindedness. I mean, I, I, I don't mean I, that question sounds a little more critical than, than I mean it to be. But I mean, I think you understand what I'm saying. There's, there, there are a couple of ways to approach a question, and, and one is to go in not knowing what the ultimate answer is. It sounds like you really went after this uh, already, very much committed and convinced uh, of, of of a certain perspective on this. Is that yes fair? Yes and no. And I had to separate myself as the advocate for girls' schooling from the researcher. Uh, I went into it initially writing a book on girls and gender and schooling with regard to girls uh, and was very skeptical, that's to put it mildly, I think, of boys' schools. And so I did not go into it with a positive view on boys' schools at all. And... Um, turned around 180 degrees on that issue. So in that, in that regard, I did go into it with a certain familiarity with girls' schools from my own experience. Uh, and the more I started talking to women who had attended either an all-girls high school or a college, I was getting such positive stories and su- such positive feedback, and from the girls in the schools that I was visiting. So even though I did have a certain uh, point of view on girls' schools, it was, it was so... Uh, firmly reconfirmed in my research, in, in the anecdotal reports that I could find, not in empirical research. However, with regard to boys, I did not have an open mind. In fact, it, w- it went the other way. Uh, and, I, and as I said, I turned around 180 degrees when I saw what was going on in the private sector, in boys' schools. And then when I saw the, the, the very uh, really... Uh, stunning kind of remarkable data that was coming out of these small uh, public school programs for boys that were opening around the country, where these were at-risk African-American, mostly boys, and uh, school administrators, principals were saying, we really have to do something for these boys. Society is just failing them. And what you saw then in these schools in these small classes was improved attendance, uh, attendance, decreased dropout rate. Uh, improved academic performance in reading and math, boys beginning to identify with schooling. Uh, and that's what turned me on the boy issue. Well, where had your initial opinion come from? I mean, had you really stopped much to consider boy schools, or was it just sort of a, of a gut reaction to them? 
I think it's it's uh, a hold over from uh, a 1970s view of of women's rights and how women and, and understandably so. You know, you have to we have to recognize that those who are somewhat uneasy about single sex schools. I understand that that discomfort. Women had to fight so hard to get into all male institutions. Historically, women were excluded from schooling totally. And, you know, in the old days, girls were only permitted to attend school after the boys left in the afternoon or during the summer months when the boys weren't using those schools in in the late 1700s and and early 1800s. Uh, And even into the 1900s, into, you know, rather recent years, vocational education was so gender-specific. Girls were were uh, channeled into uh, careers in dressmaking and um, cosmetics, that you know that sort of thing. Boys into automotive, into aviation, uh, more higher-paying careers, and so th- that kind of exclusion of women really still hits very deeply in many of us who remember it. Uh, and and so for me, boys' schools were bastions of male privilege. They were institutions that excluded women. They were institutions that um, reinforced certain negative feelings about women's ability and women's capabilities. But when I visited the private independent schools, I saw something else happening. There were more women teaching in these schools. Uh, They were more nurturing of these boys, particularly little boys. I saw less gender polarization than you would typically see in a co-ed school. I saw boys being encouraged to develop a soft side to themselves, a more nurturing side. Boys mentoring, older boys mentoring little boys, sitting in the hallway teaching them how to read. That, that wasn't my vision of what a boys' school was like. And I, and I think it, it probably wasn't the reality for most boys' schools at some time. And I, I understood in talking to these educators that, fortunately, the women's movement had had a positive effect on boys' schooling as well. Hmm. We're speaking with Rosemary Solomon. She is the author of Same, Different, Equal, Rethinking Single-Sex Schooling. Uh, One thing you say that's quite interesting, I think this is maybe at the end of the preface, you say the question of single-sex schooling is indeed complicated but not unanswerable. I love the way you put that because... uh, you are confronting the complexity of this issue, and yet at the same time, uh, sincerely believing that that one can navigate through all the complexity. One of the things, of course, that makes it really complicated and and especially fascinating to view is the fact that it has polarized uh, people that are often on the same side on many other issues, and and sometimes people who would otherwise be at odds in every other social issue find themselves as sort of odd compatriots when it comes to this particular issue. Outline that for us, if you would, uh, how this seems to break down the more more standard uh, categories of left and right and uh, conservative and liberal and so on. From what I view, it has split what what we would call the old feminist community down the middle. Uh, uh, There are those women who, and all of them are women who fought very hard to gain access for women to positions of power in the 1970s and the 1980s, but it has split that group right down the middle. And and what I observe is the difference between women who attended um, an all-girls high school or a women's college and women who didn't, women who've never stepped into one of those institutions. So it's really divided 
the, the women's advocacy community, uh, as I see it, and that seems to be the dividing line. On the other hand, you see some liberals and you see some uh, African-American parents and Latino parents uh, siding with what appears to be a more conservative element in the country who support single-sex education for social reasons, that it just, you know, it, it, it removes the social distractions between boys and girls. And that's, and some, and, you know, there's some very conservative elements who just think that's the way it should be, that girls and boys should be uh, separated uh, for educational purposes. So you, you do see these odd coalitions of groups forming that wildly disagree on other social issues. And you also see that divide in the, in, in the women's uh, network. You mentioned the fact that much of this difference of opinion comes down to, you say, at the heart of the debate lies the concept of equality and equality between genders, and and th- this is a really interesting uh, discussion which you uh, which you lead in, in in this point of the book because I think most of us do not stop to to realize that equality as a concept can be approached in all kinds of different ways and, and actually very different ways and uh, and it comes down to uh, philosophy and it comes down to practical application and uh, and 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 that is. Uh, part of what makes this sort of uh, rocky terrain to travel. That's right. You know, I, I, I talk in the book about the text and the subtext. Uh, and the text seems to be, well, are, are single-sex schools legal? Uh, and are they educationally sound? That's, you know, that, that's how the public views the, the critical issues. But underneath it is this whole subtext of political and social and philosophical concerns that, that are just churning the, the debate, and that's what's really driving it, uh, if you will. And I realized I had to do, and I do one chapter, just on equality uh, engendered <clears throat> and looking at this notion of how equality has changed over the years from a 1970s view of women assimilating into the mainstream of society, that women and men are essentially equal and women have to have access to everything that men have, the kinds of power that men have in society. Uh, and that that view of equality really, uh, women made a great stride within that view of equality in the 1970s and the 1980s. If may I just interrupt a moment, I think what we're saying here in in, in this particular chapter, uh, I mean, in this kind of view of equality, is it it really, uh, for the most part, submerges the differences between men and women, and really brings to the fore a focus on the fact that women and men are not particularly different from one another, and so they really deserve and should have uh, equal opportunities and equal pay and so on. And there is some truth to that, because by and large, women and men are the same, and socially they are legally and politically equal. But the critics, the the diehard critics of single-sex schooling, are, are holding on tenaciously to that view of women, uh, from there, in the 1980s, uh, there was this other view of, of difference, difference equality. Uh, well, women and men are different. Uh, they have different ways of knowing. They have different ways of learning. And uh, some were, and this cut across the disciplines into not just philosophy, but law and um, and literary criticism and sociology and psychology. There was a, a wide band of scholarship that developed with this view. Um, and, and there are some problems in taking that view to the extreme as well, because 
there's always the danger, well, women are, are different, but perhaps they're deficient. And it almost takes you back to a Victorian view of women. And so the first group, the assimilationists, becomes very nervous you know, thinking about what the second group is telling them. And yet the second group does, there, is some, there are some differences on the margin between men and women. And we don't know if it's, it's biological. It may be socially conditioned. Hmm. Uh, we really don't know. You also talked about something which had, had not ever uh, occurred to me, and, yeah. and that is the fact that then there, are, there will be other feminists who really um, take, take issue with the whole notion that, 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 that certain people will, will presume to speak for all women right. in a way which seems to uh, uh, ignore the enormous diversity which is out there among women in terms of, of, of social class and, and, uh, and other sorts of ways in which background really make a huge difference in, in how one wants to live one's life and the, the problems which, uh, which one woman versus another woman uh, will confront. And, and the idea, I mean, this, this strain of thought really comes mostly from African-American scholars and some Latino scholars, that there is no essential woman, that we all bring, all women bring to the table uh, their whole experience, the whole experience of their lives. And th- that experience includes not just their gender, but their social class as well, and their race and their sexual orientation and whether they're disabled. You know, there's just a whole bag of factors that play into how women view the world and what their experience- experiences are. Uh, and what I conclude in that chapter is that each of these views of gender equality has something to tell us about how we should uh, how we should examine the single sex school issue mm. well and it helps explain why this has been such a contentious issue because right. at, at the heart of it is this difference of opinion about what equality means and probably people who battle over the issue of of same-sex schools don't even realize that there is this philosophical difference amongst them which is probably driving the debate absolutely absolutely We're speaking with Rosemary Salomon about her book called Same, Different, Equal, Rethinking Single-Sex Schooling. Apart from that whole issue, philosophical, if we want to call it, uh, issue of what is equality and how is it best achieved, uh, there is also the whole realm of legality, which must be confronted. Uh, Maybe you could explain, first of all, what we mean by Title IX, which I I think just about all of our listeners have have heard of, but we might not understand exactly what Title IX means and its ramifications for this particular issue. I would bet most of your listeners are most familiar with Title IX in the context of athletics and girls' athletics. It's a law that was passed by Congress back in 1972. It prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, in educational programs that receive federal monies. And public schools across the board receive federal monies of some sort, and so they're subject to Title IX. Now, the Title IX law itself, the way Congress enacted it back in 72, um, it does not expressly even cover public elementary and secondary schools. It prohibits gender discrimination in vocational education, and in graduate higher education and in professional education, but not in public elementary or private elementary and secondary schooling. What happened with this is that the old Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which now has uh, rolled into partially the Department of Education, uh, the department published regulations in 1975. Those old regulations 
put certain restrictions on single-sex classes in particular, not on single-sex schools, but on single-sex classes, that students cannot be separated in course offerings on the basis of sex, except for some, uh, some exemptions like contact sports, for example. And so it's the regulations that are somewhat problematic when it comes to single-sex classes, but even the regs don't prohibit single-sex schools per se. But they do say that if you offer whatever services you offer to one sex, you have to offer comparable services to the other. And they also provide for an affirmative action uh, provision there where um, a school district can take affirmative steps to help one gender as compared to the other. So the law is rather complicated. But it's not as definitive as the critics have said, particularly with regard to single-sex schools. And the statute itself says nothing about single-sex classes. Now, those, those regulations, at this point, the Department of Education, the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Ed, is drafting, as we speak, uh, new regulations that will hopefully undo some of those regulatory uh, prescriptions. Uh, through the course of this book, you uh, you take us into the, within the walls of of a number of single sex schools. What's kind of interesting is um, as you examine you know, some of these absolutely wonderful institutions, uh, you 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 mention the fact that it is difficult to discern in any really quantifiable way how much of School X is a great school for girls because it only has girls. I mean, because they will have all these other uh, aspects to what they do, their curriculum and the way the school is organized and so on, that uh, uh, certainly have all kinds of uh, important effect as well. And how one discerns the significance of the fact that it is all girls or it is all boys, you, you yourself say that this is often an intangible sort of benefit. And I suppose that's part of the problem, that you can't just quantify it, put a number on it to, uh, in order to defend it. That you could make that argument about any, any type of uh, educational innovation uh, or any study that's comparing one educational strategy or program and the other. There are all these variables that we just not cannot control. The background of the students, you could do that to a certain extent. Only, only comparing students from the same social background, parents have similar educational levels. But then you have the teachers themselves, the educational background of the teachers, the curriculum that's being used, the whole hidden curriculum of the school, the environment that's created in the school. You just cannot, we're not doing, uh, this is not pure science. We're not doing experimentation in a, in a science lab. It's just very different. And so there's always the criticism that, well, how do we know it's really the single-sex aspect that's improving academic performance in these students? We don't know for sure. But, but again, you could say that about any other educational study. It's no different. Right. Um, I appreciated the fact that uh, that you were sort of honest and forthright in the way that you wrote about this. For instance, in in talking about the first book, uh, first school you that you um, visit, I'm not sure. Well, actually, you're kind of talking about all of them. There's a, a school in Baltimore, a school in Philadelphia, another in New York City, and you say there is something else happening in these schools that goes to the heart of their single sex mission. A special something 
that their supporters maintain is impossible to replicate in a co-educational setting. Um, I have a feeling that's a very good way of of putting it. But as you say, uh, it's also the kind of language um, on which uh, critics of same-sex schools probably take aim. What what I found in talking to these girls, th- there's a certain um, sense of self-confidence they have. There's a certain synergy there of what's happening in these schools. The girls will tell you, uh, yes, you know, it, it is somewhat problematic about our social lives. We don't have boys, but we do see boys after school. But then again, we don't have boys socially distracting us. And many of them came from co-ed elementary and middle schools, and they'll compare their experience in high school as compared to, or whatever, as compared to their former school. It's just easier for them to focus on the academics. They, could, they use the metaphor of sisters. They feel like sisters. There's more of a sense of camaraderie among them. Uh, I also saw girls who just had a, such a strong academic focus. Now, I'm not suggesting that single-sex schooling is for all students. Certainly, we would never... I, that co-education is such a, a strong uh, cultural component of American schooling, and that's the way it should be. My suggestion is that it should not be illegal in the public sector. We know it's not harming students. We do have some anecdotal evidence that it's benefiting students, and some students in particular. There are some studies from abroad, from countries like England and Australia and New Zealand, where these schools are more common, indicating that students do benefit academically from single-sex programming. So why not permit school districts to start uh, experimenting, uh, opening programs uh, a few at a time, and, and trying to gather some harder data, some harder evidence to see if, in fact, they're working. And the only way we can do it is to lift the legal cloud. I thought it was interesting that it uh, more than once you uh, you talked about how these all-girls schools seem to be, for, for many of their students, uh, a refuge. We see that term come up uh, at several different points, and I assume you mean a refuge from the, the sometimes more chaotic uh, atmosphere of, of a co-ed setting where, where certain girls, as you said earlier, uh, can sometimes be uh, intimidated uh, in, in, into not being the kind of students that they uh, were, were meant to be. And Well, here we see the complexity of the issue because you really have to consider who you're talking about, what population. Um, are these uh, privileged girls? Are these disadvantaged girls? Are they urban girls, rural girls, minority girls, Hispanics, African Americans, Asians? A- across the board, uh, there is uh, there there seems to be some evidence that it does benefit girls across the board because particularly in middle school and high school where girls again are somewhat vulnerable to the to social pressures uh, and there is a, a lot of research that's been done on verbal interaction in the classroom for example that boys tend to dominate discussion in the classroom. Uh, and in the absence of, of boys, well, then girls are more comfortable speaking their mind and better able speaking their mind. But when you get to minority girls, there's other things happening there as well. For them, it's not just a, a safe harbor at this special time in their lives where they can flourish academically and, and develop emotionally, but for many of them, it really is a safe haven from the alternative schools that they would have attended where many of them end up succumbing to pregnancy, early pregnancy, and, and repeat pregnancy 
by the time they leave their teens, setting them on a downward spiral, putting them into a cycle of poverty for the rest of their lives. Many of them in co-ed schools in certain kinds of neighborhoods are subject to a lot of, and the, and the girls have told me, impermissible touching. You know, it's a very, we have a very sexually charged society, and I, and I, I hesitate to say that because it sounds somewhat Victorian, but popular culture today is very different from what it was 30 years ago. There's a very heavy sexual element, and girls are pushed into early sexual activity. And so this kind of it gives them that safe harbor where they don't have to worry about those issues and can just uh, focus on the academics and, and think about what they'd like to do with their lives. And that's, that's so important, particularly for disadvantaged minority girls. I wanted to ask you quickly also about the fact that, um, uh, at least in some all-girls schools, the curriculum is different. And there is uh, more of a focus on uh, women in history, women in society, and, and so on. First of all, how, how pervasive would you say that is? How common is it for an all-girls school to have a, a curriculum that is markedly different from that that might be found in a comparable uh, co-ed institution? And, uh, and how comfortable uh, are you uh, with that sort of differentiation? Yeah, well, that could be a slippery slope, and I've thought about that quite a lot because there are certain um, dangers that we have to be concerned about uh, in single-sex schools. We don't want math tied up in pink ribbons for girls. <laughs> uh, you know, we we want that serious academic program, um, and that and and with regard to your question, it really does vary. Some of the newer schools that are opening. Uh, like the Young Women's Leadership School in New York and the uh, Chicago Young Women's Leadership Charter School, which is modeled after the New York School, there you, you probably see more of this focus on women's accomplishment and women's achievement, because those are new schools that were started with a very clear focus of empowering poor girls, poor disadvantaged minority girls. In the older schools, well, even in, even in the Baltimore High School and the Philadelphia High School, and those schools were established back in the 1840s. They're very old. You do what I saw in the, uh, in the libraries was a very sizable selection of books that focused on women's experiences, and even in the language arts program, probably more so than you would see in a co-ed school. Uh, and, and that's fine. You know, girls do need to, they need positive role models in their lives, and, and women's experience has been excluded from the curriculum, and, and over the past 20 years, women's advocates have tried to include more of the women's story and historical figures, female historical figures, into the curriculum, and these schools are very conscious of that. But, uh, but they don't exclude uh, students from an experience within the wider realm of literature or history, for example. Uh, this is more of an add-on. It's not replacing what other schools are getting in co-ed schools, and, and that, that's a very positive way of looking at it, because you don't want to so uh, genderize schooling that boys are going to learn, you know, one set of knowledge and girls another. Uh, and, and again, that's that's the slippery slope that we have to be very careful about. I, I was thinking about that because I was thinking, for instance, if if one is studying the history of music, uh, one might make the decision to uh, study Amy Beach, uh, but. Uh, it, it would be maybe worrisome if that were at the expense of the time you would spend studying Beethoven. That's right. 
uh, it, it, right. it does become kind of an interesting, uh, interesting question. And one issue that I've become more, more thoughtful about, uh, even since completing the book, is what do we do now? If, in fact, uh, single-sex programs do become legitimized in, in, a, in a firm, affirmative legal sense, what we do need is staff development. We really do. We need some mechanism for, uh, for getting the information out to very well-meaning educators who are thinking about establishing these schools. There has to be some form of networking among these schools so they can share their experiences and that their, their uh, teachers and administrators have to understand what this is all about and not to fall into this kind of gender essentialism. Uh, and gender stereotyping. Hmm. Profound questions, fascinating questions raised in this book called Same, Different, Equal, Rethinking Single-Sex Schooling. The author, Rosemary Salomon, the book published by Yale University Press. Rosemary Salomon, I I really commend you for uh, writing a fascinating book, and I appreciate your time in joining us to talk about it today on The Morning Show. My pleasure.